Well, good morning, Two Rivers. We are Two Rivers. It's good to be with you today. It's absolutely good to be with you today. Hey, big welcome out to Roan County, Bearden, down the road, down the hall here to, to Ampt and to Blend. We're glad we're all together this weekend. Hey, we're wrapping up a series in the book of Mark this weekend. I hope you've been following along, but if you haven't been, hey, this is the last week. <laughs> Good on you, right? Hey, we're wrapping up a series, and the, the title of the series has been Fluent in Good News, that we'd be a people who'd be fluent in the good news. And today we're going to be in Mark chapter 14, all the way through to the end of Mark's gospel, 16, verse 8. And we're going to hunker in and hone in where Mark's been this whole eight weeks, and this whole gospel, emphasizing the kingship of Jesus. I hope you've heard that week after week. He's been pointing at the kingship of who Christ is. And if you're following along and you look in your Bible and you flip over there and you go, wait a second now, my, my Bible doesn't end in 1680, it ends in 1620. Good on you. Good Bible students. Awesome. Hey, there's, there's scholars who would have edited this to some degree over the years. It's in the canon for sure, all the way to 1620. But Mark had a very distinct way of communicating. His writing style, he knew readers would read this. Remember, he wasn't writing this as things were happening. As he looked back and, and he wrote his gospel, he wanted to make sure that, that what was profound, what was succinct in his mind and in the, the mind of his readers would be exactly what he wanted it to be. And so Mark actually does a mic drop at the end of 16.8 where he ends with the resurrection. He, he simply is very curt. He gets to the point. He's direct, and he wants us to walk away as readers with, hey, this profound reality of Jesus as king has is, is been uh, personified in not only his death, but his resurrection. And I got a lot of connections with this guy, Mark. Yeah, we share the same name. That's probably pretty much it, right? We share the same name, but what I like about this guy is, is he's pretty direct. If you compare his gospel to the other gospel, the other Gospels, he, he's a lot more succinct, a lot more direct, curt even. In fact, I've had friends of mine who've, who've accused me of being uh, too direct and too curt, especially in texting, right? Somebody texts you something and, and they're expecting a response, and so I, I, I respond. I give like a one, two, or three-word answer. Apparently, that's not enough. People need handheld a little bit. Like, you need to finesse the moment a little bit. You need to give more dialogue so they don't feel hurt or wounded or think you're mad at them. Mark, Mark has a, a, an abrupt and a direct approach to his writing, I like this guy. I like this guy a lot. And what he wants us to walk away with is the reality of, of the kingship of Jesus. And as we've been working our way through the book of Mark all summer, I hope, you, I hope if you remember one thing from the book of Mark, it's this. The good news is that the kingdom of God is here. That's what we've been drilling home every week. So say it with me. In this venue, in every other venue, on every other campus, what, what's the theme of Mark? The good news I don't know how the other venues did, but this was lame. What, what is the theme of Mark? The good news? Absolutely. So when you think about the book of Mark, I hope that's the first thought that comes back to your mind because that's what the author wanted us to walk away with. And this truth really serves in and, and, and bleeds right into our big idea for the weekend. The good news is lived out under authority if Jesus is our king. The good news, it's lived out under authority if Jesus is our king. Authority. Wow. That's a fun topic, right? Don't we love to talk about authority, the people that are in authority over us? No, it's something I think we all wrestle with and buck up against. And not, let me just say, I don't think it. I know it. It's something we all wrestle with. I was driving down to Florida a few weeks ago, and I wasn't even out of Lenore City. 
I mean, we were 30 minutes outside of, of the Knoxville area, and Google was telling me that my nine-hour trip was becoming 10, now 11. There's hazard upon hazard. It's going to be crazy to ever get to the beach. And so I felt like, hey, they took a couple hours from me. I'm taking it back. So what I did was just set my cruise control up a little bit, and then a little bit further, a little bit more. And then my co-pilot, unsolicited, reminded me several times, Mark, you're up in the 80s now. Like, that's not right. But everybody else is in the 80s. We're doing this thing. And what, what, what's the issue here? And you think, ah, oh, we got a pastor on staff that speeds. Apparently so. What the issue here is, is not my speeding, is that my unwillingness to submit and, and place myself under the authority of anyone. Anyone. It's a battle and a struggle we all have in life. Driving's an easier thing to hit, but it's, it, it's a tension point below the surface within each and every one of our lives. And, and Mark's getting after this. Mark's talking about this. Folks who are in the the, the fluency of the good news, they, they know what it means to live under the authority of a king. We have a king, and we live under his authority. Mark bookends kingship all throughout his book, all throughout his account, and all the way back in chapter 1. We've, we've hit this verse every week. Chapter 1, verse 15, Jesus said, the kingdom of God is at hand. And who's saying that? The king himself. He says, the kingdom of God is, hand, is at hand. Believe, repent, and believe the gospel. Mark says, from the very beginning, it's about kingship. As we walked our way through the whole book, and now as we get into 14, 15, and 16, there's this paradoxical coronation that takes place where Jesus is actually coronated as king. It's a bizarre, paradoxical, absurd flip and turn of events where Jesus becomes and declares himself to be the only one worthy to be our king. And Mark punctuates this all the way through his gospel. And here in 14 and 15 and 16, we see, hey, they, they placed a, a, a purple robe on him, a cloak around him, right? That should sound familiar to us. That's what kings and folks in royalty are placed under. They gave him a crown of thorns. They bowed down in homage to him and actually paid respect to him. Though they meant it in ridicule, there was a, a degree at which they were bowing down to the king himself. And Pilate asked him, hey, they say that you're the king of the Jews, he asked him about his kingship, and to that Jesus replied, it's, it's as you say, it's as you've spoken. This paradoxical coronation of a king on a cross and through his resurrection. Mark drives this home all the way through. Picking up in chapter 15, verse 21, as we see this coronation playing out, and they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who's coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus that carries cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine and mixed with myrrh, and he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them, to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him, and the inscription of the charge against him read, The king of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and the other on his left. And those who passed by derided him and wagged their heads at him, saying, Ah, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with their scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Catch this. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. I don't know when you read this if that sounds like a coronation to you. It doesn't sound much like a coronation to me. I know we talked about this weeks before. We, we, we saw an, on TV, maybe you watched it, the coronation of a king, King Charles, right? It was beautiful. Didn't have a lot of meaning. Didn't have a lot of significance for us. And I think if we're not careful, what we see is the same thing taking place. This, this 
this reality that, that this coronation's happening, but it's happening in a, in, a, in a way that no one expected. It's paradoxical. And yet Jesus' coronation through crucifixion has proven that he alone is worthy to be king. The accusation of his crime and the inscription nailed above his head was sought to mock him, king of the Jews. And yet it's exactly who he was. It's that upside-down reality. It's who he was. He was king of the Jews. He said, hey, king of Israel. He was king of Israel. In fact, he's king of the world. This whole idea of kingship is thematic all throughout the Scriptures, not just in the Gospels. We're going to get back to it in Exodus in a few weeks. You're going to see the same theme then. It pointed to a king, the king who would one day come. And Jesus said, I'm the one who's come. The kingdom has come. The kingdom is at hand. Yet his kingdom did not come as expected. He didn't sit on a, a throne an opulent throne, but he hung on a, on a dirty wooden cross. And darkness fell, and he cried out to his father, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he breathed his last breath. The curtain of the temple was ripped in two, and, and in Mark's gospel, you see a couple people that respond, and, and, and actually, it, it seems like they get it. There's a centurion, a guard who is, who is set there to watch Jesus die. And as he watched Jesus die, he said, surely, surely this is the Son of God. He saw something different about this man. Joseph of Arimathea, we've talked about him before. He's the guy that offered his tomb. He was a part of the council, the very council that led Jesus to his very death. And yet Joseph of Arimathea went to Pilate and he said, and it says of him in Mark, he says that he was himself looking for the kingdom of God, looking for it. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus that he might actually bury him in his own tomb, which he did. And then listen, as this crucifixion moves to resurrection, this beautiful coronation in an unexpected way. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. And then the best three words of the English language written here, he is risen. He's not here. See the place where they laid him? But go tell his disciples and Peter that he's going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And they went out and from them fled from the tomb. And trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Folks, again, unexpected. And in a way, you think, how could this be unexpected? Jesus actually sent them a save-the-date card three different times in the book of Mark. He sent them a save-the-day card about his coronation. Remember, he spoke in parables, and it was hard to understand some of the things he was following, to follow what he was saying. But three different times, he succinctly and distinctly said to them, hey, folks, we're going into Jerusalem. We're going up into Jerusalem. The Son of Man's going to be taken. He's going to be arrested. He's going to be beaten. He's going to be crucified. He's going to be killed. But three days later, I'm coming back. Three different times. And so in one way, it was unexpected. How could they wrap their minds around this? And in another way, he had told them that this is exactly what's going to take place. This tragedy, this drama that had, had evolved and erupted there at the crucifixion and, and then in his resurrection and a grave was turned upside down. We talk oftentimes throughout this series about the upside down kingdom. King, the kingdom that Jesus came to establish was a kingdom the world doesn't recognize. It's upside down. But here in this, in his coronation, in his death and resurrection, it's right side up. He says, I've come back. 
It's the reality of what's taking place. And so, folks, we live under authority, the authority of Jesus, because he's the only one worthy to be king. He's the only one worthy for our allegiance and our loyalty because he did exactly what he said he would do. His life, death, and resurrection pointed to the reality that he's the only one worthy to be king. And if he's the only one worthy to be king, it has implications for you and me. How we live. What does it mean to live under authority? That's at the heart of this. We have a king. Maybe, maybe, maybe a king doesn't mean a whole lot in the world in which we live in where folks question kingship. They question anyone that has authority. Anyone in authority has been questioned. No, no one's given the pass for authority. And kingship where, you know, we don't have a king here in our country. And yet it feels like a perfunctory or a, an unimportant or even perhaps irrelevant reality and yet not the case throughout the scriptures. Not the case all throughout the scriptures from, from the Old to the New Testament. Kingship had a significant and critical place. And Mark's drilling home this for his readers. And we are part of that group who are now his readers. We're reading this gospel. And what Mark is saying is that we get it. That we understand how critical it is that we have and are honoring and under the reign and rule and authority of a king. Jesus declared his kingship. And then Mark records he calls folks to it. He calls folks to his kingship. He calls folks to follow along. In fact, <clears throat> the king didn't come in. Like, you think of a king marching. I don't think Charles just meandered into the cathedral, right? You don't think Charles just coming out of the, out of the city streets and meandering into a, a cathedral. But Jesus, how did he establish his kingship? He walked along uh, water's edges. He walked in cities and towns. He called folks that were unsuspecting to be leaders and to be a part of his following. He, he spoke to crowds and the masses among common people. And Jesus over and over again was describing, hey, hey, the king has come, the kingdom's at hand, and I'm going to tell you what it looks like. Through parables and stories and even in, in his direct approach and his teaching, he was describing what it is, what it looks like to have a king and what that king, kingdom looks like. Remember several weeks back, we talked about the sower. A sower sows seeds and he throws them out. And, 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 and Jesus says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Everybody's not going to accept it. Everybody's not going to receive it. There's folks who will get it and will understand it, and they're going to respond. The kingdom of God is like a growing seed. It's mysterious how it grows. It's mysterious. I've planted things in the yard, and I've gone out every day and gone, where are they? Are they growing? Are they growing? Are they growing? And Nothing's happening out there. But one day I go out in the yard and all of a sudden it's like two or three feet tall. It's mysterious how it grows. The kingdom of God is like this. It's, it's happening below the surface. It's in a mysterious supernatural way. It's evolving. He says it's like a grain of a mustard seed, which when sown on the ground is the smallest of all the seeds on earth. And yet when it's sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can come and make nests in its shade. The kingdom of God erupts and evolves and becomes and actually finds itself bringing shade. It, it becomes something that's massive in a way unsuspecting that no one saw coming. But before you know it, it's there. It's here. He says the kingdom of God is like, like a child accepting it by faith, not overthinking it. Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Shall not enter it. He talks about the kingdom of God being harder for rich people. Why? Because you're blinded by the things you think have met your needs, and Jesus is the only one who wants to meet your needs. Over and over, he describes his kingdom, what it looks like. It's not what the world thinks it's going to look like. It's not what anyone anticipated or understood it to be, and yet Jesus continues to describe it and calls people to it. And Mark's determination in his writing is that we grasp kingship. It's crucial that we grasp it. And this idea of having a king is foreign to us. I get that. 
I get that it's even foreign to us to think we can live under someone's control. Who wants to live under anyone's control? Not me. And I know every one of you. Not you. We don't want to live under control, whether it's a speed limit or whatever it is. We don't want to live under control. I've, I've not wanted to live under control since the day I came out of the womb. I remember I lived in my house and I thought my parents were just so controlling. I wanted to decide when I ate dinner, when I went to bed, when I got up, what I did that day, what, what, what my day was going to look like. And yet I couldn't wait till I got my driver's license because I thought that's going to be the day. That's the day. I'm going to be independent. I got my driver's license and my dad said, hey, this car belongs to me and these keys are the keys to your independence. They're mine. <laughs> control. I know we think there's people who have control issues. I love when people talk about this. Well, you know, he's got a control issue. Or she's got a control issue. They just aren't as good as hiding it as the rest of us. <laughs> there's nobody with any more. I mean, maybe you have more control issues than other people, but the reality is we all have a control issue. We all have a control issue. Nobody wants to be told what to do. Case in point, somebody in your office or your world comes back and from a conference or whatever and says, hey, I got a new idea. They read a book. Hey, this is what we're doing. We're going to implement this thing, and this thing's going to go into, uh, into play, into practice. And they're all gung-ho about it. They're berating you with it. In fact, you can't even get a word in edgewise. They're so convinced this is what we're going to do that you have no idea how to stop this thing. So they're, they're laying it out. And you're looking right, them, look, looking right back in their eye and nodding, smiling. You're even writing down like, like as if you're actually going to do this thing. Ever heard the word passive aggression? That's where we live. That's controlling. So I smile and I nod and I go, there's no way we're doing this. In fact, you're coming back a month later with a new idea for the week. I'm going to let this thing ride and see if it gets any kind of longevity to it or sticks to the wall in any way, shape, or form. We, we all wrestle with this stuff. We don't want to be controlled by anybody. And, and the reality is it gets back to the heart of where we live and who we say reigns and rules in our life. All throughout Mark's gospel, Jesus demonstrates his authority. All throughout his gospel. You can see specifically 10 different times the word, the concept itself emerges directly. But I sat with my highlighter in my, in my Mark journal this past week and I, I just highlighted every place in and throughout his gospel. It was really fun. I hope you'll do it. Everywhere within his gospel that he demonstrates his authority. And it was endless. He demonstrates his authority over the body, healing after healing after healing, over the demonic, over the scriptures, over nature, over the future, over the natural and the supernatural realm. Some 50 demonstrations of Jesus's authority as king in the world in which he reigns and rules. A, a few weeks back, we hunkered into one of the stories here in Mark, and I love this story. We're going to revisit it again today. I think Dave Nichols covered it. And, and it's that story that's probably familiar to a lot of us who've been around church for a little bit, where, you know, these guys were, were worried about their friend. Jesus was healing people left and right, but they couldn't get their friend to Jesus. So what they do? They climbed up on the roof, and they cut a hole throughout the roof, and they lowered this guy down so that Jesus would be able to actually heal this guy. And the first thing Jesus does, does is not heal him. He does this. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. I don't know if that's why he came. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately, Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your heart? And folks, read this one. Hear this, hear this next line. Which is easier to say to a paralytic, your sins are forgiven? 
or say, rise, take up your bed and walk. But that you may know the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose immediately and picked up his bed and went out before them. So that they are all amazed and glorified God saying, we've never seen anything like this. We've never seen anything like this. Don't miss the point. Don't, don't miss what Jesus said. He has the authority to forgive sins so that you'll know I, I have the authority to do that. He goes, I'm going to tell this guy to pick up his mat and go home. A guy who's been crippled his whole life. That's the authority that Jesus has. And we say yes and amen. Do we not? God has the authority to forgive our sins. All of us have had our sins forgiven. You've been forgiven. It's amazing the amount of debt that God has forgiven just in this place. Yes? Your sins have been forgiven. We have life promised to us for all of eternity. Is that not exciting? That's the good news. We, we're going to live on the new heavens and the new earth with Jesus forever. And all of us would say yes and amen. But here, this. Along with that, we don't just have a savior, we have a king. He didn't just rescue and save us so that we'd have our sins forgiven and live for him for eternity. That we'd live for him for eternity means how we live here and now. We live under the, the kingship and the authority of Jesus Christ. That's where we are. I think it's an obvious statement, an obvious fact, and yet that's the thing that I wrestle with. We wrestle with every day in our world and our lives. Who, who's in charge of me? Whose reign and rule do I find myself, do I live under? The gospel, the good news, many, in many of our minds feels like it, 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 has its, it has its complete place when someone is, is, is actually praying a prayer, a prayer and receiving Christ. And, and that's it. And yet for us, it's so much more. It's, it's following Jesus, deciding to follow Jesus today. If you've never made that decision, I pray you will. I pray the Spirit of God right now is poking and prodding at your heart in such a way that you know what you're hearing right now is true. But for the rest of us, it's making that decision, not coming to Christ again, but re-upping, realigning that followership in our lives each and every day. I'm not the boss of me. He is. I'm not in charge of me. He is. The people in our lives that stand out to us, the people that we go, man, I, I want to I have a, a walk and a relationship with Jesus like that person. Those people, I love that I've got dozens of you in my mind when I think about that. Dozens of you. I want to have a faith and a walk with Jesus like you have. And what's true about the people who live this way, who are flat out in love with Jesus, they know what it means to be saved by him, but they know what it means to live under the reign and the authority of Jesus. And there's words we don't use in the English language a whole lot, but I hope it's words that are familiar to us as we are followers of Christ. We live surrendered, surrendered to the reign and rule of a king. What does it mean to surrender? It's to lay it down. I remember fighting with my brothers growing up. I mean, I had to just wave the white flag. I surrender. You got me. Surrendering to him under the reign and rule of Jesus. That we'd be servants, servants of Christ. Servants. That means you get up every day to, and, and ask Jesus, just like Audrey did in the video, Lord, what do you want from me today? I can't get the accent right. It's beautiful, isn't it? Lord, what would you have me do today? Let me follow, your, let me follow what you have for me, what you want from me, how you want me to live my life today. That we'd be servants to the king. Here's another, another word that's not real popular, but I think it hits the point that we'd be slaves to our master. Slaves to our master mean we're owned by someone else. I'm not my own anymore. I've given myself to Jesus. I'm now a slave to Jesus himself, the master. The people who live this way, the people who actually surrendered in this profound way are not people who look trapped to me. They're not people who look like they're bound up and locked up and just struggling through life. Oh, this is so hard and so tough. You know what they look like? They look free. 
They look like they're free. It's, it's counterintuitive to think I could surrender the reign and rule of my life to Jesus and be free. And yet that's what the kingdom of God's all about. Let me give you an illustration. Good friends of mine, good friends of, of, of a lot of you actually, Dick and Pat Moe. Hey, Dick and Pat. <laughs> Probably watching from home this weekend. Hey, Dick and Pat Moe have had a beautiful life, have a beautiful life. They're in their mid-80s. Hope that doesn't offend Pat that you know she's not 60. But they're in their mid-80s, and uh, they flat out love each other, love Jesus. They've had a, a beautiful life, have a beautiful life. And yet their life has not been perfect. It's been marked by some significant tragedies that, truth be told, I don't know that I'd survive. I don't know that I'd get through it. Like, I've watched them get through it and move through it. And in every turn in their life, in every turn of their walk with Jesus, they've surrendered to the master. They've surrendered to the king. They've been servants of the one in whom they claim has been their savior and is their Lord. Folks, that's what it means to, to live a life of following Jesus. That's what it means to be fluent in the gospel, that, that we'd be people living under authority in such a way that it's not only a, attractive to other people of faith and encourages us to walk even more committed to our, our commitment to Christ, but, but it, it speaks to the world that there's more, and the more is Jesus, Jesus who's our king. The core of our acknowledgement of Jesus as king and his authority over our lives, folks, it's a matter of the heart. It's a matter of our heart. Living under authority of Jesus is a heart issue. And what lies in the heart, what lies here in my heart and your heart, flows out into everything that we think, feel, and do. Does it not? It's the control center of my life. The, the heart of my world is the control center of my life. And a lot of good things come out of my heart. A lot of good things come out of your heart. And yet, if you, if you read the scriptures and you read the full counsel of the scriptures, Jeremiah says this about the heart. The heart's deceitful above all things, and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Anybody ever wonder about that? Who can understand it? The heart's deceitful. What does that mean that the heart is deceitful? It's a wild place that we, we, we're forced to live out of. And I just say this, I've never been a woman, but being a man, it's hard for men to understand what's going on in here. You women seem to have a, an easier way of explaining it or understanding it or grasping or seeing it. We can't barely communicate it, right? And yet, Here's the, here's the reality, here's the deal. For all of us, men and women, the heart's deceitful. What does it mean that the heart's deceitful? The heart will lie to you. My heart will lie to me. It'll lie to you. It'll tell me all the things that I want it to tell me so I can be good and feel good about the decision I want to make. Yeah, that's good. That's good, Mark. The heart is also deceitful to lie to me. It'll tell me things that aren't true about me. It'll bring up stories and narratives that were past done Jesus is forgiven, dealt with, and yet they've been brought back into this place and this narrative that seemed to be paralytic for me at times. The heart is wicked and deceitful. And Jeremiah asked the question, who can understand it? I think the answer is nobody. Nobody can understand it. The only one that can understand it is the one who made it, who created our heart and calls us to surrender and find ourselves in alignment under his kingship and authority in the core place of our thinking, feeling, and believing. King Jesus who can understand it? Christ and Christ alone. I met a guy, um, it was probably about a year or so ago, and it broke my heart. A guy came in my office, and you know, we were sitting chatting for a bit, and he said, uh, I, I got a big decision to make. I said, well, what is it? What's your decision? He said, you know, I've been married, married for 23 years, and I got to tell you, I'm just, it's not working for me. This whole marriage thing, I, I, I should never probably have gotten married. There's got to be more out there for me, more in life for me than this. This is not this is not the life I thought I'd ever live. And uh, I see a lot of people speaking in my life. And I said, well, you have a lot of good people and got good friends. What are they telling you? 
And he said, well, my friends are telling me, dude, you got to follow your heart on this one. And I said, man, I'm not a counselor, and I don't have the finesse. I'm getting down to my three-word answer. Don't follow your heart. Don't follow. That's the last thing you need to be doing is follow your heart. You can't follow your heart. Your heart will tell you all kinds of things. He said, what am I supposed to do? I said, you're supposed to follow God. Place your, place your, your decision-making under the reign and the authority of Jesus. Follow Jesus' heart. He will not lead you astray. But, but will it ever get better? I don't know that it will get better. Your wife may never be the more that you hope for and expect, but she's never wired to be. Jesus is. And you're going to find it through obedience and, and a declaration over the long haul of, of being faithful to who God's called you to be and following his heart. I know that's hard news to hear. And yet, I know that it's true. I've seen it in my life. I've seen it in other people's lives. And I know it's a dramatic story, but it's the same, same exact drama that takes place in my life and your life every day as we wrestle with this question. I don't think we think about it, but it's a question that sits right there in the dashboard as we move throughout our life. Well, who am I going to follow in this one, me or him? Who's in charge of my life, me or him? Whose will, mine or his? What, what's the decision? Where, where am I going to land on this thing? Jesus is our Savior, and yet we often hold him at bay from having that full and complete control that's rightfully his. It's rightfully his. And he warns us about this. He goes, hey, your heart, there's a lot of good things happening there as long as I'm reigning and ruling, but out of your heart come, come all kinds of stuff you don't want to be dealing with. And in Mark chapter 7, same book, same gospel, same author, he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. Is that a fun list? No. He's, no. That's not a fun list at all. Absolutely not. All, all these things come out of a heart. Remember what Jesus said about uh, adultery? He said, if you've lusted after someone, you've already committed that in your heart. He goes, the heart is the control epicenter of your world and life. I want to reign and rule there so that these things don't flow out of your heart. They don't flow into your belief and your actions and your words and how you live in this life. I want to call you to more. And if you flip this, this, this list upside down, look at it again, I, I would dare any one of you to, to read this list in front of me and say, hey, there's not more than a, f a few of those that I can check the box on. Th these are areas in my life that I'm wrestling with. And don't be condemned by that. Allow the, allow the wrestling with that and, and, and for you to be thinking about these areas, to be reminders, indicators that here's an area of my life that God's calling me to more. God's calling me to surrender in a greater and a deeper way, to, to allow him to reign and rule in a way I've not allowed him yet or I've slipped up and moved back to places I never, never longed to be. When you look at this list, anybody this week have any thoughts of sexual immorality? I'm not asking for raised hands. Theft, wanted something that wasn't yours. Murder, spoken harshly about a person, wish they weren't alive. Adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit. Anybody lied this week? Sensuality, caught up in the world and what passions it says will offer us, what we're, our hearts seem to long for. Envy, got to stop for a minute. This is my biggie. I can check several on this list, but envy's mine. Envy. It's not, it's not that I, I want what you have. I want to be you. <laughs> no, I want to be you. There's certain things that I want to be. I, I, I want to I look like you. I want to act like you. I want to teach like you. I want to be you. And what that says, you can laugh about that. It, it, it's a, something I struggle with every day. It says, I don't believe how you've made me is enough. I don't trust you with me. 
I'm, 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 I'm questioning the potter. Envy, slander. Anybody speak ill of anybody this week? Pride, foolishness, all this is foolishness. Anybody step into these things, these areas? These are the things that Jesus is saying, hey, out of the heart, these things all come and they find a grip in our lives and, and begin to have it, its impact and play in how we think, feel, and believe. And Jesus is saying this. Mark is pounding this to us that we'd understand that we have a king. We have a king, one who reigns and rules, who's always reigned and ruled. One who has authority, not only to forgive our sins, but, but to give us the very spirit, his very spirit, to live the very life he's called us to as we surrender our hearts to him and give him access to all that he's called us to be. Every week we talk about the live it out in our bulletin. If you're new to Tuver's Church, if you open up your bulletin on the right side of the inside pocket there, you'll see uh, there's a, a discipleship guide. We talk about the live it out section where we actually engage together throughout the week in the very text that we've been in the week before. And so I hope you'll do it. No one's going to question you and ask you about it and say, hey, have you done it this week? Maybe somebody will, but I'm not going to do that. But in, in, in that discipleship tool, I hope you'll use it and walk it through. And, and what does that do for us? It places me under the authority of the Word of God. Jesus has said, I've told you how to live. I've given you instruction on how to live. I've given you parable after parable. I've given you story after story. If it was all just about your salvation, I would have stopped there. But I, I've given you instructions throughout the letters that I've written to the church, how then we are to live. How, how do we know how to live if we're not placing ourselves in, in the familiarity of the very curriculum he's given us to grow? I hope you'll do it. And what we're going to do right now is we're going to do what Jesus encouraged his followers to do. He said, I, I, I want you to remember me. Remember what it, what it was and how it is that you came into relationship with me, how you became a citizen of the kingdom of God. And that very night, that night that Jesus was betrayed, I can't imagine what was going through his heart and his mind that night, but the very night that Jesus was betrayed, at the Passover meal, he, he took the bread and he said to his followers, these people who had walked and done life with him, he said, this is my body given for you. I don't know if they could understand it, that the next day his body would be nailed to a cross, his body given for them. And yet, as they remembered this, weeks, months, years out, it had great significance like it does for us. He said, take and eat. And likewise, after supper, he took the cup, a cup of wine, and he said, this cup represents the new covenant of my blood. And he said, whenever you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim my death until I come. In essence, what he's saying there is you, you, you claim that you belong to me. You claim that I'm your king. I, I'm the one who rules and reigns. I'm the one who's going to keep you until I come. He said, drink this, knowing that your sins are forgiven. Not Mark's gospel, but another gospel. Remember when the disciples came to Jesus and they said, hey, teach us how to pray. How do we do this? How do we, how do we pray? And Jesus said this. Hey, pray like this. Our Father who art in heaven, honor the Father. Hallowed be thy name. The next line, I hope it sounds familiar to you. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Oh, that God would take us to a deeper place of greater alignment in all of our lives, Tuver's Church corporately and each of your lives individually, 
as we seek to surrender anew and afresh to the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Let me pray for us. God, thank you so much for your goodness. Thank you for the truth that you reign and rule, that you are the king. And with your kingship, you bring the authority in our lives. God, would you find us in a new and fresh way surrendering to that, realigning today. God, just as you prayed that very night in the garden, knowing the cross was before you the next day, cried out to your Father, Father, it be your will. Let this cup pass from me. But not my will, but your will be done. Oh, God, may we have your heart to be obedient to you in the way you were obedient to the Father. It's in the holy and matchless name of King Jesus we pray. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's stand and worship the King.